0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today we are honored to have uh, Luke Mann with us. Luke Mann is a media studies scholar based in Atiora, New Zealand. Uh, his research investigates the sociocultural impacts of digital cultures and broader intersections with race, politics, and the environment. This wide-ranging work spans from Hong Kong protests to Uber, Labor, and Far-Right Radicalizations, and has been featured in highly regarded journals such as Cultural Politics, Big Data and Society, and Information, Communication, and and Society, as well as popular forums like The Guardian and The Washington Post. He has written three books, Unmaking the Algorithms in 2018, Logic of Feeling 2020, and Automation is a Myth 2022. And this is the book we are talking about today. The book was just published this year by uh stanford university press luke welcome to New Books
1: network thank you very much thank you for having me yeah kira koto katoa and uh before i begin i do want to just acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that i'm on uh, which is mianjin or brisbane and pay respect to the elders past and present
0: Thank you very much. Um, look, I myself work in an area which is about workforce development and I always hear things such as industry 4.0, digital transformation, automation. Automation is going to make 30% of jobs redundant. We have all these big headlines and they're not in new things. because back in 1970s even uh, uh, cut. Name escapes me. President of the United States Kennedy even said that uh, uh, automation will replace a lot of jobs. So uh, before getting get into these discussions, can you briefly introduce yourself and tell us how this book came about and talk about your research expertise, which is not you. You do discuss the important aspects of automation, which is usually swept under the carpet or ignored.
1: Yeah, great. So I'm a research uh, fellow at the University of Queensland. Their Digital Cultures and Societies hub. There, I've just moved recently. And uh, yeah, this book really came about because um, i have been looking at automation, new technologies, and particularly how they shape work. And that's something I've been interested in for quite a while. So my earlier books are sort of around the gig economy and platform labor, these kinds of questions. And um, yeah, so I did started writing this essay about these kind of myths around automation and, and how they really prevent us from actually understanding what's actually going on, right, with new technologies kind of on the ground. And um, that sort of developed and had legs. And um, yeah, I really just kind of ran with it in a way and pitched it to Stanford um, University Press, which really liked it as well. And um, and as I sort of developed research more, I found more and more examples of these human stories where um, right? we don't have full automation, but we have this sort of partial piecemeal thing happening where um, humans are often propping up these so-called automated systems in particular ways, and it uh, really seemed to capture a lot of the issues with, um, with automation, with kind of the future of work, or really the present of work, right, in a way. And so the book essentially like pushes back against this, these kind of grand narratives about automation in order to develop a more uh, detailed portrait of kind of work conditions on the ground, and help us to understand what's um, what's actually going on there.
0: So in your research, you you have visited, you have done, uh, you, you have visited different sites and you have talked to people as well. Am I right? So can you talk maybe about the sources you used to put this book together?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I tend to draw on quite a lot of different disciplines. So my background is really media studies, um, but I often draw on like political science and history, race studies, cultural studies, um, psychology and different aspects. So I try to use those insights from those different um, disciplines in order to um, give us a better understanding of these these, technical phenomenon. And um, the way they really shape everyday life and the way they they kind of fall out I guess human fallout right in terms of lives and livelihoods and how they change the way we're working and playing and living um, so yeah, in terms of material, uh, I really drew on a lot of different worker stories for this book, um, so things like reddit forums, things like investigative journalism, where um, journalists would go into things like Amazon you know, warehouses and things like um these or sort of ethnographic accounts of like being a picker, Amazon picker, which we've had a couple of those now. And then also looking at um other places outside the US. So one of the projects I was working on as a researcher was this project on um automation within China. Uh so looking at Alibaba warehouses and logistics and um, thinking about how that kind of automation really was quite different in some ways to what we're seeing uh, in the U.S. and particularly sort of shows the issues right with having this kind of universal sweeping claims about automation. So I drew on quite a lot of that material um, in parts of the book to kind of show how automation plays out really differently in different spaces.
0: And uh, the title of the book is quite provocative in, in terms of the other reports we see here in automation is everywhere, but you simply say automation is a myth. And I do encourage our listeners to just check out the book and, and, uh, on a website and, and see the cover. Which is, uh, I really like it. It's simple, but kind of, it kind of uh, tracks your attention. So when you say automation, how do you define automation in your scope of research? And I'm sure you don't mean it's a complete myth. Of course, there are automated technologies, but uh, what do you mean when you say, uh, because you do talk about like piecemeal changes rather than totally drastic changes uh, with regards to automation. Can you um, talk about that, please?
1: Yeah, sure. So it is like a hook, right? This provocation about automation is myth, arguments on the cover, right? And I kind of wanted that um, sort of provocation as a way to draw the reader in and especially sort of students, um, grad students and um, who are one of the kind of audiences for this book so it's a kind of argument up front um, and the argument really is not that of course that you know technologies don't alter work conditions in any way. Um, of course they do, but really that um, this this automation rhetoric that we've had right over the last hundred years, the rhetoric that we see in newspapers and magazines and tech. Um, journalism and so forth, it's been around for a long time and this rhetoric of this sort of grand narrative where automation will uh, replace all the jobs and take over from the human, whoever that is, um, and sort of sweep across the globe, that rhetoric, that grand narrative um, is a myth because it's something that really distracts us or prevents us from understanding. What's happening on the ground so um for one just to gloss the kind of the sections for one it, it i think it, it prevents us from seeing that automation yeah is piecemeal right it's partial and these so-called automated systems are often propped up by a lot of human labor um and secondly it's a myth because it talks about um it's kind of a sweeping the globe this idea that Automation will take place in the same way in every location. Whereas what we know from cultural studies, from area studies, and so on, is that we have very different conditions in different places. And technology gets taken up or, or lands, really, in, in certain ways in different places and gets used quite differently. right? So that something like automation in India looks very different from something like automation in the U.S., And then thirdly, um, you know, this automation myth really has talked for a long time about the human and mankind and what will happen to mankind, right? And in that sense, it it gives this figure of the human. um, And that figure really um, obscures the fact that labor is racialized and gendered, right? So these impacts will not happen to all humans equally. They will happen to some humans more than others. And what we really see when we look at contemporary work and the ways in which technologies are rolling out is that certain populations, certain people groups, bear the brunt of that impact, right? So women, immigrants, people of color, and so on, um, really take uh, really take the impact of, of automation in very particular ways. And so the human then obscures the kind of... Uh, That the way that that racialized and gender dynamic plays out and so that's why uh, Automation I say is a myth and really like I said uh, earlier It's not about debunking this myth um, and just breaking it down, but it's a way of uh, It's a kind of springboard, right? So by pushing back against this myth we can then actually dig into the conditions race conditions or geographical conditions or this sort of more detailed portrait um, and use that to develop a kind of more nuanced understanding of how actually technologies are altering labor conditions.
0: Uh, That was an excellent uh, explanation. It sort of covered the next question I wanted to ask you. Um, And perhaps I should have mentioned it at the beginning that the book kind of, maybe debunk is not the right word, as you mentioned, because you draw our attention to other aspects of automation that we tend not to think of because of all those grand narratives such as race, gender, geography. So you discussed three myths, the myth of automated um, autonomy, the myth of automation everywhere, the myth of automating everyone. Now, you you kind of touched upon some, some of the socio-material realities that are sort of divorced from real experience of people in different parts of the world. Um, And uh, one thing I liked about the book, and that's something you also discussed your, you mentioned in your your introduction, is that we tend to think of automation as an apolitical phenomenon. It's just automation. It's a good thing, but be careful because it's going to make jobs redundant. So what are some of the dangers that are associated with uh, conceptualizing automation as a completely apolitical phenomenon?
1: Yeah, I think um absolutely so what we see really in a lot of tech rhetoric particularly and also we look at like business um journals, management um rhetoric and so on is that um we get a certain kind of set of values that are often prioritized, right? And that's things like productivity, things like efficiency, things like speed, right? And so and these these values then are really hard to argue against, right? Who can be against efficiency, right? (laughs) It seems like very common sense and something that everybody would want. Um, But I think what, you know, what Media Studies and what this book in particular is trying to do is really show how that rhetoric launders uh, a set of technologies, a set of values in particular ways, right? So it plays into... Um, the incentives of particular companies, tech companies um, plays into a particular framing of labor um, which is quite disembodied um, and it's all about speed and optimization and so on where uh, really workers don't feature in this um, conversation at all. One of the quotes in the book um, that I use um, from a black activist who's in, been involved in unions is that it's really bizarre that automation um, talks a lot about work, but never about workers, right? Um, and so you talk, you have these things about labor pool or about optimizing certain procedures or processes, um, but these often obscure the kind of impacts on individual workers and um, the kind of negative experiences they might have, right? So um, that's why... We need to sort of repoliticize um automation. And by political here, we're not talking about parliament and politicians. We're really talking about po- power relations, right? So who has power? Who gets to speak? Who must be silent? Uh, who gets to make decisions? Um, and, you know, some of the workers in the book, they talk about the fact that they're not not necessarily against technology in the workplace, but they do want to have a seat around the table, right, when it comes to being a stakeholder, making decisions, um, you know, obtaining some of the, uh, maybe some of the profits, right, from these new streamlining procedures. Um, so in that case, it's really about repoliticizing um, this topic and thinking about workers' rights and these kinds of issues.
0: Because yeah. in a little while, we'll be talking about some specific examples of how these uh, the labor of these workers is sort of made or rendered invisible um so you 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 again you talk about gray literature which you discussed earlier but can you describe either there was this example in your introduction that i really love can you describe some of these maybe manual tasks that uh that that's that sort of you know uh, form the basis of the foundations of these so-called digital operations which we don't really see
1: Yeah, sure. So I dig into a few of those um, in a couple of the chapters in the book. Um, It really is a way to show, again, the sort of human army of labor that often props up these so-called automated systems. Um, So we've already talked a little bit about things like warehouse picking, right, where humans are still um, pushed in many ways to the breaking point in order to match um, the kind of metrics that are expected of them when we talk when we do warehouse picking of items and delivering of those. Uh, I also talk about sort of more obscure or overlooked forms of labor. Um, So things like content moderation, which has got um, quite a bit of uh, research more recently, I would say. Um, So there's huge amounts of uh, people who work in this space. So content moderation, of course, is done for large social media companies, and content, of course, is um, key for these companies. Without a sort of stream of interesting, engaging, and safe content, um, these platforms die, right? So um, they need some way of ensuring that that content is not toxic, not hateful, and so on. Um, But machines really struggle to make those kinds of decisions. These are actually quite Ambiguous decisions a lot of time, right? Distinguishing between um, what is nudity, what is hate speech versus what is slang, um, what is something that is kind of uh, maybe uh, ethnographic or particular to an area versus something that is seen as abusive. Um, these are actually really difficult decisions that require a lot of context awareness. And that's something that um, algorithms have really struggled with in the past and still struggle with. And so these companies then um, still rely on huge masses of humans to carry out um, filtering and moderation. Um, And that really comes with a huge human cost, right? So what we're talking about is essentially uh, people being subjected to watching these videos over and over again, Videos of um, abuse, of rape, of violence. Um, And we've seen a few, had quite a few stories now, then, of moderators who talk about the kind of trauma, really, that they're internalizing as a result of that, the fact, the ways that they go home and drink or cry and just try to recover in time for the next morning's shift, right? Um, And so that's why I call them sort of the Haskem. Uh, workers of the digital world, um, where a lot of these sort of affect of trauma gets offloaded um, to these people who then have to deal with it. Um, and that's a sort of growing, I think, growing sphere of labor in many ways, um, what Grand Siri called ghost work. So the sort of hidden labor that often props up our systems. Uh, there's another brief example. We can look at AI and machine learning. Um, And the data required of these systems then requires a lot of um, cleanup, requires often quite manual labeling of data, right, to determine if something goes in one category or another, or determine, you know, what's a street, what's a car, what's a pedestrian, and so on. Um, And all that can be done to some extent um, by machines, but often... The more detailed, nuanced, context-sensitive stuff really requires human workers. And so, again, you have this sort of huge army of human laborers, often in the global south, who are forced to work for pennies per task, carrying out this data cleaning, data generation kind of work, which really feeds into today's uh, modern AI models. Um, so those are kind of some quick examples then of um the, the human labor that props up our so-called automated systems.
0: Yeah, I, I remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was going back home with my friend and we saw some of these e-scooters that are all over Melbourne, and I'm sure it's the same in Brisbane. And he told me, I wonder how they managed to find these scooters, how they bring them back to the city where it's just people finding them. But I, um, but I think it's in the middle of the night, right? You, I think that's the example you also have in your book. Uh, the people right, who just drive around the city, f- pick up these scooters and then bring them back to CBD again.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's um, That's an example in the introduction chapter. And it's just a brief example, I think. But, you know, I talk about, you know, someone scrambling to pick up these bicycles and place them on a trailer. They hurt their back a little bit when they stretch to grab something. They sort of work up a sweat. And they get a little bit frustrated, but also they're proud in some ways that they can carry out this work quite quickly um, and do a good job. And um, it's just a short story, but I think it's, you know, it's really helpful to get an example like that because it really shifts the paradigm, right? It shifts the narrative rather than this kind of 10,000 foot view of automation. We get a, quite a different kind of portrait um, at the coalface, as it were.
0: Um let's talk about the myths there are three myths to discuss in the book the first one is the myth of automation the myth of automation is everywhere uh sorry the first one is uh, uh the myth of full autonomy and why full autonomy is never attained you have touched upon this you know uh as we are as we were talking a few minutes ago but you have this really interesting uh term there digital underclass and then you go on to discuss something called dark content which you briefly alluded to a few minutes ago. And your case study is Eva and Franco maps. So can you talk about, so this full autonomy, you men, did mention why it's not never really fully attained. What is, or who is a digital underclass? Class? And can you talk about your case study there in terms of dark content? Sure.
1: Yeah, so uh, the myth of full autonomy is this idea that uh, automated technologies will soon replace human labor altogether and so the problem will then be that we have no work to do or we have too much time and this is really a long-standing myth that we can actually trace over the course of the last century. We see it coming up over and over again uh, in different headlines and newspapers Um, and in the chapters then I sort of discuss why that's not happened. So we get this promise, um, but the promise is never realized, right? Um, and there are various reasons, I think, why that happens. I mean, very briefly, we could say that uh, one of the reasons is that work is really uh, rich and really nuanced, sophisticated kind of space, All when you think about the sort of umbrella of all the things that we put under work. And um, we talk about all the kind of gestures involved, all the cognitive labor, all the affective labor. And um, machines have really struggled then to uh, to adapt to all those different kinds of tasks. And um, machines have historically been good at, it's kind of routinized work, right? Work which is very regular, which is predictable. And even when we look at... Um, contemporary AI models, they excel in very narrow spaces, right? So they work in a particular domain, um, and they can often work quite well in that very restricted domain, but then when you try to translate them across to, to other disciplines, other domains, other problems, um, they often fall down, they fail, and so in that sense, Even um, our contemporary AI models are not as flexible as like a a toddler is, who's able to um, understand situations very quickly and able to transfer their knowledge to different kinds of problems. Um, And for for many other reasons, then we see the ways in which this, this ideal of full automation is never realized. Right, and so then we start then to talk about um, spotty automation or piecemeal automation, things that are partially automated. And so rather than this this kind of either this utopia or dystopia where humans are you know, made redundant, what we get is a kind of purgatory in a way where we're sort of caught between these two dreams. Um, and so some things are partially automated, but they also break – and they need maintenance and fixing. They need humans to prop them up. Um, Humans then, like in the self-checkout example in the book, you know, humans uh, are then forced to become like security guards, right, in a way. Their capabilities and requirements then change in particular ways. Um, And so we get this sort of half, this sort of gray space, this half, um, half automation space. Um, that, that you know, creates new pressures, I think, on the worker. And that in itself is worth paying attention to. Um, but it's quite different from the sort of utopias and dystopias that we were promised. And, yeah, in that digital and underclass example, then, I sort of, I've talked a little bit about already um, this kind of gray work, uh, this click work and crowdsourced work. Um, a lot of that, I think, would fall into this idea of the digital underclass. Um, but one of the key, one of the key arguments, I guess, from those chapters, I really wanted to stress, was that. Um, it comes quite late in the chapter, and it essentially says that what we see, what we're starting to see, then, is that automation does. Erase the worker in the sense of the full worker with a full-time job, a kind of career with full-time benefits, right? That kind of classic mid-20th century understanding of a worker um, is something that is increasingly rare right, in today's labor regimes. And what we get instead then is a kind of casualized or flexible or just-in-time worker who operates – on tasks um for for very low rates and we see sort of work versions of what's called digital piecework right where we almost see like this revision to work from a couple hundred years ago where you're trying to crank out tasks from your bedroom from the internet cafe and so on and you're getting paid per piece and this is a form of work that labor activists really um tried for decades to abolish and in some sense were really successful in doing, right? Um, In order to improve work conditions and get better wages and salaries and rights and so on. And so in some ways, it's quite bleak, but what we do see is sort of reversion to older forms of labor exploitation as a result of these digital technologies. Uh,
0: I was... A few months ago I got a message on my LinkedIn account. There was somebody I'm not going to mention a specific country from Global South. Uh, it's basically the idea of digital freelancers. So If you have any work you can outsource it to people somewhere in Sri Lanka for example or India or in Africa they would do the same job with and you can uh, pay less than you would put, you would pay for example in Europe or in Australia or in America and there's this usually this uh, other company which acts as a mediator between you and that freelancer and the freelancer still gets a little bit more maybe than what he would be paid in his country now uh, but again to me it looked like another sort of sort of exploiting the uh this army of freelancers or invisible let's say digital underclass maybe
1: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and i think we do see different examples of that in different places increasingly. And what's interesting, one small, I think, point here is that um, we do see it in the global south, but also, uh, I think, in more precarious workers in the global north as well. Um, So, you know, there are actually a lot of um, workers on Amazon Mechanical Turk, for example, who are based in the U.S. Um, And so these workers Uh, carrying out work for very low wages and what's interesting is that um, workers in India actually complain about the unequal conditions where workers in the US apparently get better paying jobs even though they're still poorly paying right Um, so we see again this sort of um, digital divide forms of like the global like division of labor um, coming back up where essentially it's like uh, forms of coloniality Reappearing once again, right where you have workers in the Philippines or in India Sri Lanka and so on um, Doing work for companies who are based in Palo Alto or California or the UK and so on um, So this sort of classic um, Division of labor or labor exchange.
0: Mm-hmm uh, and, and that's uh, the third myth I get, but we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Let's talk about the uh, the second myth, that automation is everywhere. And regardless of geog- geography, ot- automation will operate uh, in a similar manner everywhere. And you, you discuss examples of automation in, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Jin-jian, and why understanding the cultural context is important. Can you talk about that myth?
1: Sure. So... Yeah. Automation is everywhere is something that we see repeatedly in the automation literature over the last hundred years. So this is a very kind of universal generic understanding of automation where this is a kind of techno- technological development, um, that will sweep the globe. Right. And so it's coming for everyone and, um, everyone must get ready and, so when we look at this rhetoric, then again, we have this very, it's kind of 10,000 foot view where um, automation, it's implied, will take place in the same way in all locations. And so the second part of the book then again pushes back against this idea and as a way to stress the importance of context and culture. So context and culture, then, uh, we know that they're really important because we do see the ways in which technologies get taken up um, in very different ways in different places, right? So technology is not something that um, just kind of lands in the same way everywhere, but it's something that intersects with particular norms, particular values. Uh, It often gets adopted or adapted um, in certain ways, right? So, a community will pick up certain features um, that they really like and then change other features or ignore them. Um, and so, you get these sort of so called global technologies developed by US companies that can, that can um, utilize in actually strange or unpredictable ways um, in, in different places around the world. So the whole point of this part, two is to really just uh, make this kind of very simple but quite fundamental point, right? That culture and cult context matter. And to do that, then I look at these two case studies in Xinjiang, which is northwest China. So uh, for those who don't know, so Xinjiang is the home of the uh, Uyghur people. So this is a um, minority people. As opposed to the majority Han people, uh, they uh, share, in many ways, more in common with um, those in, in Tibet or other countries neighboring. Um, and and for this reason, there's been this really long-standing kind of oppression of of Uyghur people. And so then I look at these two examples of so-called automation. And so the first then is this automated um, surveillance uh, in Xinjiang region. So this is one of the most, I would say, pervasive and intensive surveillance regimes in the world, Um, meant to kind of keep tabs, uh, oppress and monitor and manage um, this minority population. So this involves um, things like CCTV, of course. But also it involves huge amounts of human workers who um, man the checkpoints, right, who carry out security screenings, who go into people's homes and their places of business and interview them um, and then uh, record all that data onto mobile phones and that data then comes back to the sort of single platform that hopes to centralize all the information. Um, about the weaker people and so already then we can see that not only is this not an automated system there's huge amounts of human labor but more importantly I think uh, we can see the way this this viewpoint this this stress right on culture and context shifts the narrative away from this idea of automated surveillance and to something more like um Historic uh, racism, right? Systemic racism. Um, so, of course, we have technologies that are carrying out these kind of operations, which are part of this. But this this whole surveillance regime really dovetails into this long-standing um, antipathy, right, between these two people groups, and into this long-standing oppression of the Uyghur people. And so. What we get then is that these technologies um, really—they really prove something that was already suspected, right? That the Uyghur is this abnormal person, this deviant, this someone who's a problem, who is going to create issues um, in society, um, who's harboring something already, right? So we get this—we get this um, sense, this form in which technologies confirm. What this cultural context already suspected, right? Um, and in that sense, then I think it's really productive to shift um, away from this tech, pure technology view to then think about the forms of historical and systemic racism. And then the second case study that you mentioned um, again focuses on Xinjiang, um, but looks at cotton harvesting. So. Um, cotton harvesting is really key to the region. Um, it's actually one of the largest um, cotton production regions in the world um, and is really renowned for its high-quality cotton. And, you know, they talk about the fact that cotton cotton harvesting is, is a very difficult job. It's very taxing. It's brutal. Um, and in recent years, then, we see a lot of media by the Chinese state um, by sort of tech companies or tech affiliated companies, which talk about uh, the fact that this cotton production cotton harvesting is automated, right? So no longer will we have to do this taxing job. Uh, We have these huge tractors. We have things like drones that fly overhead that map the fields and so on, and that it's all becoming automated. And so I really dig into this claim. And um, and draw on quite a few scholars, um, Chinese scholars, who have really looked closely at this space in the last few years, and shows the way in which it's not automated. Um, it's actually just that this quite an invisible group of laborers, the the Uyghur people, then are really um, really coerced into. Uh, forms of labor exploitation where they are transported to these fields, right, um, often far away from their home village, and then they're stuck there uh, essentially to the end of the harvest season. Um, there's no escape uh, in any real sense. Uh, they're often paid far below what was promised and um, then forced to carry out this kind of backbreaking work from sunrise to sundown. And so what we see then is not automated harvesting, but this kind of um, again, the sort of leveraging right of this of this uh, cultural relationship where we see the um, incentivizing the systemic deployment of low paid ethnic minority workers. Um, and so in that sense is then I think these two case studies really foreground the ways in which Uh, we get a lot of new insights or better insights, right, from sort of um, sidelining or augmenting technology with these cultural and contextual understandings.
0: Uh, I think a couple of years ago I saw this report, which was actually released in Australia. This was about how uh, political prisoners in in China are forced into labor for big companies, car manufacturers, car manufacturers, Uh, which, which, again, sort of, uh, it resonated with me. Mean, I was reminded of that when you were talking about uh, this surveillance, this sort of surveillance capitalism there. Um, the, the third myth you discuss in your book, and this and personally I found it the most fascinating one because I've never thought about automation and how it's blind to gender. So it's, it's the myth of automating everyone. Um, I have a couple of questions for this part so can you first tell us broadly how is how is automation uh, blind or oblivious uh, to issues of race uh, or labor because labor is a very again it's a very complex uh, it's a very complex and stratified phenomena the, the industrial relations or labor relations differ from country to country. But can you tell us why or how in what ways automation is blind to these issues of race and gender and labor?
1: Yeah, so again, when we look at the automation rhetoric from the last 100 years, what comes up repeatedly is this um, phrase of automation and man, right? Or automation and the human. Um, And that's something that, you know, we could... We could dismiss it as something, I mean, it's like 60s language or something, right? Sort of more patriarchal language. Um, But actually, when we look at even more recent reports of uh, automation, we see this very generic figure of the worker, right? Um, So workers are referred to as sort of a labor force or a pool of laborers, right? Um, And so even more detailed uh, reports about automation, you know, I go through them and you can see that they only include like women two times over 50 pages or something. Um, so there's no, there's no uh, really detailing of who this worker is and who why particular workers have different kinds of conditions than other workers. Um, and so again, I push back against this myth and talk about this idea of the human so the human especially when we draw on race studies and cultural studies human is a term that um hides a lot of things right some people get to be human and other people do not and so historically then we see the ways in which um some people are labeled humans and some are labeled less than human or subhuman and so on right um and so when we dig into this term of the human and start to look at labor, we can start to see the ways in which labor is really racialized and gendered. Right? So automation is not something that emerges overnight. It's something that, um, something that slots into this longer labor history. Right? And labor history is predicated on uh, essentially the exploitation of some people by other people. Uh, Right. That's how racial capitalism works. Um, And so we have this differentiation, which is really key to capitalism. Um, So it's not like everybody is in the same boat. Some people uh, are privileged and other people are um, dismissed or oppressed or somehow marginalized in particular ways. Right. So all this then is really key. These are like basic Basic, in some ways, insights, right, from race, cultural studies, political studies, and so on, but they're actually really important to understanding um, how automation um, how automation plays out in a space that is already racialized and gendered, right? And all of this means that when we see automated technologies get deployed in certain industries, that it's not a generic figure of the human who is being impacted, right? It's very particular kinds of people, groups, very particular kinds of people. And the people again that bear the brunt of this automation in many ways are people who are already marginalized, women, people of color and so on, and who are already, uh, in precarious positions, right? So when we think about wealth, for example, Um, wealth is one way you can become resilient against these technological revolutions right these these shifts Um, so if you have a lot of wealth in your family wealth of course being something generational like it's built up then you're able then to if you get fired for example you're able then to to go back to take time off to retrain to um, shift careers or whatever if you have no wealth um, as a lot of these groups don't, then you're already far more exposed, right? Um, and and so resilience is not something that you're able to, to leverage in a way. Resilience is something that's privileged. Um, and so, again, when we see these automated technologies play out in the warehouse industry, for example, warehouse industry has uh, really racially uh, uneven. So um, dominated by... Uh, People of color, black people in the U.S. particularly, who have been funneled into these positions over the decades, right? So that when we see automated technologies play out on the warehouse floor, then they're going to influence those workers on the warehouse floor differently from the white manager in the office above, right?
0: Uh, Another concept that you bring up in this chapter is masculinization of home automation and feminization of digital assistance. And I really loved it. When I was going through this part, I was reminded of something which might not be directly relevant, but I was reminded of this, an article I'd read some time ago. It was about coffee machines. And when coffee machines were kind of commercialized and 1970s I guess before that making coffee was a woman's job at home and there were a lot of and I checked YouTube and it was true there were a lot of commercials on how a housewife is desperate to get a good coffee to keep his her, her husband happy and then the coffee machines were in went at, and there was this actor they were commercialized uh, so there was this baseball player Joe DiMaggio in the United States and again I checked the YouTube there are a lot of coffee machine commercials with Joe DiMaggio so he's the guy the masculine guy in the kitchen, and he's the only, there are no women in the kitchen, it's just that guy making coffee. And the whole rhetoric of this coffee making sort of changed. And we had this masculine, let's say, army of barristers making great coffee. It was a gender studies, uh, I mean, a gender lens put over the, put over appliances we use at home. And when I read that part about feminization of digital assistants, I was, it suddenly hit me that, yeah, a lot of digital devices that I use are sort of Feminized, in a way. Can you talk about that idea of masculinization of home automation and feminization of digital assistants?
1: Yeah, that's a great example. Uh, Joe DiMaggio in the kitchen. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I look at, uh, in the the second to last chapter, I look at uh, this feminization, how automation then alters the conditions of work for women. And, of course, women um, don't have universal... Conditions of work either, so we have to be quite careful with this claim. But there are ways in which we see um, these kind of gendered uh, gender dynamic play out in terms of automation and technology. Um, so one is, like you said, the feminization of digital assistants. So you know, digital assistants in many ways could be anything, right? Um, they could be designed and and any sort of way, it's quite open-ended. And so it's notable then that with the really in the last, I would say 50 years, then we see a range of computer devices and digital assistants that are gendered as female. And so with things like Alexa, um, and Siri to some extent, and then bots, uh, a lot of Chatbots and so on are often gendered female and this really dovetails into this long history uh, Where women are subservient, right? So women are in the in the domestic space. They are assistants, they are always ready to serve and So then when you develop these new digital technologies, they take on that role right as a way to be friendly to be open to your command to be always listening as Alexa is always willing to help Um, and so that really leverages this kind of history where then users are more prone I guess or more uh, open to giving these commands right because they tap into this long history so uh, women then are moved from being, yeah, like the computers, right, in the mid-60s or something to uh, the computerized version of the female who's always ready to help. Um, and then the other example I like give in that section then, um uh, we talk about automation is, uh, there's a couple different ones, but lack of automation is one key thing. So really the home And this reproductive labor being left out of the automation um, push, right? So the workplace, the masculine workplace uh, is in the office, the factory, and so on. It's historically been the site where automated technologies have focused. And the reason of that is because uh, woman's work is not work, right? Reproductive labor is not labor. Um, and that's the way that we define, we've defined labor in the past. And um, so bringing these feminist lenses then to think about automation is one way to challenge that assumption and to think about um, what counts as work, right? Um, and then the final thing in that section I'd point out is this masculine automation in, in the home. So strangely enough, um, home automation has really uh, been framed as a man's domain. Um, And so a lot of the technologies that we see, I would say, in the last five years get rolled out in terms of turning on lights, changing your temperature, opening your garage door, and so on. These kinds of home automation um, has really been framed as a uh, man's domain, a man's world. And again, we see the ways in which women's concerns uh, get overlooked, uh, or marginalized, or sidelined in some ways. Uh, and in the in the book, I give a few examples of, you know, guys in home automation forums who complain that their their wife is like interfering with their home automation plans, right? It's, uh, and so there's very particular ways in which these automated technologies play out um, in these gendered spaces
0: and um, in your final chapter and again it has this provocative heading automation is not our future which goes quite against all those headlines that we have automation is the way to go automation is the future or arguing against the rules of against automation is like arguing against the rules of gravity Automation is not our future. What I liked about your book, as you also mentioned at the beginning, is that it's not really debunking, but it's more drawing our attention to aspects that are not seen or ignored. And let's talk about this chapter. If automation is not our future, what are some of the alternative values or alternative visions we can have? And for those who want to read the book, on page 127, you kind of have around 10, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 10 Uh let's say, principles that you arrive at after doing the research. So can you briefly tell us what is maybe some of the most important ones, talk about the mo- most important ones, and do you all talk about the alternative vision of automation that you have in mind?
1: Right, yeah. So in that final chapter, then, um, again, I can push back against this, this inevitable future that's been handed to us by technologists and suggest that actually the future is open-ended and we need Plur, you know, plural futures really uh, futures that might be determined by different communities and by their needs right so you have then different kinds of automated technologies that fulfill the particular needs of particular communities um, and are really co-designed by them uh, I think in a way I think that would be one of the ways to go in terms of thinking about technologies and how they might support certain types of um, diversity and certain types of value Um, and so in that chapter i give a few different examples of communities and movements that have pushed back against this you know so-called inevitable automated future that we have Um, one is the lucas plan so in the 1970s this group of factory workers was uh yes in danger of losing their jobs the management said that automation would essentially replace them and uh, so rather than sort of bowing out they the engineers and the machinists in that factory then came up with a new set of products that they might design rather than sort of military industrial products that they had been making before they would make socially useful products right things for people in society that were more marginalized, uh, right? So people with special needs, for example, that might need like mobility technologies. Uh, And in doing so, then they would sort of put their skills, put their uh, huge expertise towards these socially useful projects. And so they came up with this sort of catalog then of things that they might design. And then um, in the wake of that, they developed these principles that might might really shape how automation should play out. And I've sort of adapted those in this chapter. And so they have, you know, quite simple but quite powerful uh, principles like the fact that you should be able to repair a product, right? Um, The fact that it shouldn't be alienating. So you should have some sort of connection to a product all the way through to the end of its cycle and that you should be able to see that it, you know, has some meaning, creates meaning in life um, as a result of your work. Um, these technologies should be visible and understandable to workers. Right. So you should be able to understand or grasp what's going on under the, you know, behind the scenes and be able to make uh, real decisions that make real impact in these spaces. And then they've got things like sustainable uh, principles, right? So that we want these automated technologies to be ecologically desirable. They should be made of sustainable processes and they should you know, think about the whole life cycle of the product. So what happens at the very end when it's um, depleted or so on. Right, so they're kind of, um, in ways very simple but very powerful as a way to set down the kinds of technologies that we actually want to see in our future. And I give a couple other examples then of modern movements that have really built or sort of, uh, I guess, mirror this kind of work, right? So carry out this sort of Debating discussing about what kind of technologies that we want in our society and how they what they might look like All Right, so one of those is data for black lives This is the kind of umbrella loose movement of coders activists artists um, Who have carried out a series of events over the last few years? and really they give this very different um, understanding of the kinds of values or kinds of issues that are important when we talk about technologies right so rather than just about efficiency or productivity um, they talk about things like abolition things like self-determination things like autonomy um, and how we might sort of embed those in particular technologies then the other example i give is this uh, maui data sovereignty network here in Aotearoa Um, so this is a again a loose collection of scholars and researchers who have thought about data and about the importance of data, how data itself is a kind of new technology and how then indigenous values um, might guide the, the development of data, how data is handled, who gets access to data, right? who gets ownership over the data, um, how it gets used, what kind of technologies get spun up um, from that data. And again, these are kind of fundamental questions, but by looking at them from particular community standpoints, particular people's standpoints, we get a quite different understanding of the kinds of technologies and sorts of futures that we might build uh, moving forward.
0: And um, I guess one thing. that I can think of is that during COVID-19, the adoption of digital technologies skyrocketed. A lot of businesses switched to, even educational institutions switched to digital platforms. And after a few months, they realized they can't just do away with human interaction. And they were really desperate to get back to to sort of a pre-COVID condition in terms of work relations. And even back in 1930s or 20s, if you see, look at some of the posters that futurists of the time they tried to predict what, for example, 21st century looked like. It was all these kind of bizarre sci-fi predictions, but none of them really came true. And and like I said, this COVID just again em- emphasized the ele- the human element. And I'm hoping that maybe more politicians could be more alert to those aspects of automation that you have brought up in the book uh, to give everybody a fair go in in in, in it, in 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 the adoption the of these digital technologies or automation, whatever form or take form or shape it might have in the future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think COVID and the pandemic was a moment really that shook up a lot of things that were considered to be permanent, right? The status quo, uh, something that was like labor conditions that were often seen as unchangeable. Um, and so all of a sudden, then you had by necessity a lot of people moving back home or conducting remote work, a lot of people doing maybe less work, um, and a different kind of relationship really between employers and employees, uh, different kinds of relationship based on the mediation then of our labor, right? And all of these, all of these kind of quite. Uh, Different dynamics that sort of uh, almost overnight, right, occurred, <laughs> and people were forced to sort of uh, uh, grapple with what this might mean. And uh, I mean, sadly, I think some of that some of that opportunity has been lost a little bit to really um, really follow some of those threads. But I think we do see uh, new forms of. Autonomy and agency that workers have, right? This idea of quiet quitting, this idea that workers will not return to the office if COVID conditions, uh, you know, make it not worth it, and so on, um, right? So we have this sort of newfound confidence, I think, really, from some workers um, to say, actually, this is what I want from work. Um, these are the kind of conditions that I'll accept. Um, maybe some more solidarity in terms of a lot of unionization happening right now, Starbucks, McDonald's, uh, Amazon and so on. Um, you know, moments that were considered, um, to be really unthinkable, I would say, um, before, you know, five years ago, whatever. Um, so I do think there are really some promising currents and, uh, that, if we can think about the sort of futures plural that we want, and really have this um, discussion and contemplation about the kinds of technologies that might support those futures, then uh, we'll be in a better position. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, you just rightly mentioned some of the new, let's say, a, the new forms of agencies that work it, and and it's quite interesting that pandemic in general historically has been somehow so also so it has triggered. Uh, Like even in medieval times, the peasant revolution came after a pandemic, and uh, even Black Lives Matter pandemic sort of uh, exposed, more exposed, let's say, the inequalities in work relations or economic uh, disparities. And it was also partly, it partly triggered the Black Lives Matter movement as well, and the newfound agency of workers, as you mentioned, examples with Starbucks or Amazon in the United States, which are really, really promising. Um, Dr. Luke Mann, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on New New Books Network.
1: Great. Thanks for having me.